everyone. Welcome to our webinar today. We are going to talk to you a bit about preventing peripheral intravenous catheter-related bloodstream infections and specifically a bundled approach to doing so. I do want to note uh, that one of our faculty members, Britt Meyer, and thank her for most of the slide content. She is the nurse manager for the vascular access team at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. And here are her disclosures. And um, today you will be hearing from myself. I am Kathleen McMullen. I am the Director of Infection Prevention for Mercy, which is headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri but has uh, 40 hospitals between Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. You will also hear from my colleague, Karen Lafarette, who is a clinical consultant, but a vascular access expert, and she is located in London, Ontario. And here are both of our disclosures. This program is provided by HMP Education, which is an HMP global company and it is supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare, the Medical Solutions Division. Here are our objectives. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit at the very beginning about bundles in general, and then we are really gonna delve into peripheral IV BSIs, learning uh, appropriateness of insertion and site protection, strategies to ensure that dressings and other technologies are used to protect those sites, and um, then wrap back up with another section about using a bundle to include to ensure those strategies are completed. So I will, as I said, kick it off with a little bit about a bundle. So we have some questions here. So the first question is, what is a bundle? I'm sure a lot of you have some bundles already in your everyday life. My um, healthcare system has bundles for bloodstream infections, urinary tract infections, pneumonia, surgical site infections. They're very popular and pretty common nowadays. But the concept of a bundle really started from IHI, which is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And it might be a little different than what we're used to now. The beauty of a bundle is to have uh, a small amount of things. This is generally three to five things that are extremely well proven in the literature that are the absolute must that should happen with our patients every single time to prevent um, infections. So these tend to be very well evidence-based and when performed um, collectively and reliably, they are proven to prevent patient outcomes. So what makes the bundle so special? It's really the science behind it, as well as the execution of it completely and consistently. Um, a lot of times when we make a bundle, it's not necessarily things that are brand new to our coworkers and colleagues, but they're things that sometimes aren't performed all of the time and can be un unreliable. So the bundle is special because it brings a lot of attention to those really important risk factors and processes so we can improve overall care. So is a bundle just a list of the right things to do for a given patient? It's not really a long list. Um, it has, it, again, as I said, it's it's short list. It is based on three to five things that um, are all from randomized control trials. We call those level one evidence. It, it has the, the components of the bundle will have the most evidence of anything that you do for your patients. They are scientifically proven. There shouldn't be controversy about the components of your bundle. Everybody should agree and know that these things are the best for our patients. If you remove one component of the bundle, in theory, you will see an increase in infections or a decrease in um, uh, correct patient uh, care. So we have to make sure that we are getting the things in the bundle right for every patient. So what is the difference between a bundle and a checklist? So checklists tend to be very long. They are helpful and they're very important when you are doing a detail-oriented process, for example. And we're gonna talk about a little bit of that later. But your bundle is more overarching. It is all of the things that have, have to happen in a, a long, more of a long-term context to make sure that we're giving the best care to the patient throughout their time with us. The checklist will have many, many elements. Again, the bundle will be small, just three to five elements, and all of them done with, um, all of them supported by level one evidence. A lot of times your checklist 
have things that are nice to do or things that are thought to be um, proven are thought to be a good thing for patients, but not don't necessarily have the same amount of evidence behind them. So I do wanna take just a second and offer a caution about this, the difference between these bundles and checklists. So our bundles, really good evidence, really well proven, but a lot of times some of our evidence-based guidelines, we're gonna talk a little bit about INS and APIC and CDC today, they'll have a lot more than three to five things in their guidelines. And so it's important within your teams to agree on this IHI or to agree on an IHI like bundle of things that absolutely must happen, but still keep additional things in consideration for your checklist and other aid, job aids that we'll discuss later. All right, now I'm gonna hand it over to Karen and she's gonna talk about some of the specifics about uh, protecting peripheral IVs and preventing bloodstream infections. Thanks, Kathy. Our focus today is reducing risk of infection associated with peripheral vascular access devices or PIVCs as we're gonna call them here. As a refresh, there's a number of devices that are classified as peripheral catheters. The tip of the catheter ends in a peripheral vein. That includes all extremities, external jugular, uh, scalp veins and neonates. The veins can be inserted either into the superficial or in the deep veins. And nonetheless, these are all considered peripheral um, catheters. Midlines are also included in that because the tip, as you can see here, is distal to the ax axilla, so it is still in a peripheral vein. The importance here is what is infused through these catheters. The Infusion Nurses Society recommends ideally isotonic and um, infusions of a physiological pH. While there's no well-defined and generally recognized pH or osmolarity limit, Extremes should be avoided because what will happen is that we will traumatize the vein, which, which it can erode and also lead to infection and phlebitis. So why is that so important for us? So the importance is that as you can see here, there are a number of complications that can occur uh, when we have any kind of vascular access device. Our focus today is really gonna be looking at the phlebitis and infection but there are also all these others that also can contribute to infection um, as well as um, early catheter failure. As you heard earlier, bundle interventions are a package of interventions that clinicians must know and follow for every patient every single time. What is confirmed by evidence is that the bundles shown here really help to improve patient outcomes and reduce um, bloodstream infection for peripheral IV catheters. The key concepts for preventing um, complications include site selection and insertion, as you can see here, skin antisepsis, site protection, catheter securement, and protection of the intraluminal space. We're gonna discuss all of these and uh, specifically to show how these can prevent complications specifically around bloodstream infection. Site selection cannot be overstated. We continue to see people with uh, peripheral IVs in their anterior fossa, in their wrist, in their hand. In order to ensure that the catheter um, stays for the duration of the treatment, a flat surface away from flexion, as well as healthy skin increases dressing adherence, it supports catheter securement, stabilization, it reduces catheter site inflammation as well as contamination, which we'll talk about in, in a few minutes more. And it also promotes self-care. Think about having it in the hand. It seems to be the place to go, that or the antecubital fossa because the veins are visible. What happens is for activities of daily living, like going to the bathroom, washing your hands, you contaminate, you either the dressing gets wet, it gets caught. So we have early catheter failure and contamination at the exit site. As you can see here, the study by Milky and all confirms that the catheter vein ratio and location contributes to thrombophobitis. 68% of patients had symptomatic uh, phobitis from their antecubital fossa insertion site, and 91% were asymptomatic. Further studies show that the, as I've mentioned before, that not only is there an increase um, in microbes in that area, but there's also studies that have shown that it is an independent risk factor for bloodstream infection. So site location truly does matter. So when we think about insertion considerations, 
how many of you have heard about, oh, I can't see the vein um, or, oh, this person doesn't have any veins because I can't see them. It's important that we um, shift our thinking to bringing in vascular access specialists earlier in order to ensure first, first pick success. If at all possible, visualization is, um, has greatly improved first pick success. If you're in a place where I work in Canada where there's uh, outside of the hospital, so being able to access ultrasound is very difficult. Some locations, I work in long-term care, some of them have um, a vein visualization, so that really helps to improve first pick success. It's important that for all aspects of any kind of vascular access device that we use aseptic non-touch technique. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. All components, the dressing, we must be using sterile product and that maximum sterile precautions or what in aseptic non-touch technique lingo means that it is surgical asepsis is to be used for midline insertion. There still seems to be pockets where people feel that you can do, um, uh, you can use, insert a midline similar to any peripheral, like a short peripheral catheter or a long peripheral catheter. And the INS standards do not support that. We need to use maximum sterile barrier precautions. Skin antisepsis is another key component to reducing contamination and risk of infection, as well as phlebitis. Just a reminder that phlebitis can be caused by, um, have three causes, mechanical, which we'll address when we talk about securement, bacterial, which is what we're addressing here, as well as chemical. And I mentioned earlier around what we put into that vein, into that vessel, the infusate that we use can be an irritant or a vesicant. So all three, um, one or more of those can cause phlebitis, which is trauma to the vein. And of course the vein can erode and we have catheter failure. Skin antisepsis is a really critical piece because we are removing that transient microflora that resides on the stratum cranium. The skin must be clean and dry before we use the antiseptic. And that sometimes gets missed. And so just a reminder or refresh, skin is clean and dry, then we use the antiseptic. It's important that we use the right amount to cover the dressing as well as the exits, the insertion site. So my motto is always go big or go home. It's okay to go over and clean a bigger area than what you need, rather than having a smaller area because we want the skin under the dressing to be as free from transient microflora as possible. The dry time is definitely the kill time. So we wanna make sure that that skin, once we've applied the antiseptic, that it has to be visibly dry before we insert, we apply a dressing. So that is really critical. Um, you know, again, um, that cannot be overstated because depending upon where you're working, so I've been in people's homes where they don't have air conditioning. Um, here in Ontario, we not only look at the temperature, but we look at the humidex. So I'm in somebody's home, the humidity plus heat is like over 100 degrees and it's gonna take a long time for that antiseptic to dry, but we must let it dry. Okay, it's important, as you can see here, performing a uh, chlorhexidine bath treatments daily for all patients with central lines in and out of the ICU. We want to be wiping that uh, the tubing six inches over the dressing so that we can, again, reduce that contamination. Another thing to consider, we are using a scrubbing hashtag motion. Be careful about scrubbing. Don't be over vigorous with your scrubbing. Consider extremes of age, people who are on steroids or other anti-rejection medications, their skin's very vulnerable to skin tears. The INS guidelines for peripheral IV management include a lot of these. And so the key points in this are really around making sure that um, I think one of the most important things that we can institute into our practice is reducing what we call JICs or just-in-time catheters. Assessing the need for the catheter daily is a critical component to helping to reduce infection. And, um, and so this is where, I mean, there is a shift taking place, but there's still a number of places that automatically start an IV when the patient's admitted into the hospital. This may be different in your environment, that where, um, where I'm working, um, where I'm living, that seems to be pretty well the standard.
So we want we need to eliminate that because we we insert the catheter when there's a need and when there's no longer a need, it needs to be removed. Dressing changes using aseptic technique every seven days, okay, for transparent dressings, as well as um, every 48 hours or so for gauze or non-transparent dressings. Um, I cannot overstate the other overstatement that I want to stress to you is using use of a skin barrier for people that are at risk skin. So peripheral IVs, um, gen we hope that we will um, insert the right catheter for the duration of the treatment. If you have a patient who has vulnerable skin, using a alcohol-free sterile skin barrier is critical to helping to reduce medical adhesive-related skin injury or moisture-associated skin damage. We're going to talk about securement in a few minutes, um, and also if you if you must put it in the hand. So thinking of pa about patients with chronic renal failure, the hand is the first choice for us. We need to make sure that we protect that area whenever the patient's showering or bathing or washing their hands. Again, to prevent water contamination, because otherwise then we have to change the dressing. The other component that we talked about was intraluminal space protection. What are we talking about by that? It really is around reducing the contamination of what we're introducing into the catheter once the catheter is in place. This is accessing through a Y-site, needle connect, needleless connector. All those connectors allow microbes. This is a direct access into the bloodstream. So it is important that we clean those hubs very well um, in order for us to be able to access it. In aseptic non-touch technique, they talk about key parts and key sites. Needle connectors, Y sites are a key part, and we want to make sure that those stay sterile. So we need to be scrubbing the hub. If we're using alcohol, the dry time is key. Again, at least five seconds. You may need longer depending upon your environment. Chlorhexidine takes at least 20 seconds. It must be completely dry. Otherwise, first of all, the dry time is kill time. So if we're not letting that dry, we're still um, there's still the risk of uh, sending microbes into the bloodstream. And the other thing is that we also are sending that product into the bloodstream as well. Passive disinfection, what we call disinfection caps, are a great option that helps to improve consistency. A number of uh, management bundles, infection management bundle bundles are um, now including this because it does help to provide that consistency um, of practice in ensuring that that hub is clean before we access it. Flushing is important because flushing helps to remove any fibrin buildup inside the lumen of the catheter as well as at the tip of the catheter itself. Um, and there isn't uh, recommendations, there are recommendations for the amount that you use for peripheral IVs, anywhere from five to 10 mils is sufficient. Um, you want to make sure that that flush goes in smoothly, there's no resistance, and that you have robust blood flow. With peripheral IVs, that's always a challenge that might not be able to get that blood flow back, but we want to make sure that it is very, that you have um, absolutely no resistance. For central lines, uh, again, uh, when working in the community, our practice was for each lumen a minimum of 20 mils in order to ensure we have truly cleared that, um, that pathway. And of course, we want to use turbulent flow. So the push-pause technique, because that push-pause technique provides some turbulence within that catheter, allowing the walls of the catheter to hopefully um, receive some of that flush to help remove any loose fibrin. So I've mentioned ANTT or aseptic non-touch technique, and this is an actual framework that was uh, developed by, I'm just gonna go forward just for a second here. It was developed by Simon Clare and Stephen Raleigh. These are nurses that work in the UK, and they identified that there was inconsistency in aseptic. People didn't, you know, you, you could quiz 100 people and they would define asepsis, sterile, um, clean, um, no touch technique, there was really no common definition or framework for practice. So they put that together and you can see here, which is just a snapshot, we could spend easily hours talking about this. The important parts of AT&T are risk assessment, just determining at what level the complexity of the procedure that requires what time of asepsis. So I'd mentioned earlier about midlines requiring a maximum of zero barrier precautions. Uh, for this, this would be considered surgical AT&T. 
complex procedure, lots of parts, your standard AT&T is for all those other things, flushing, inserting a peripheral IV, doing a wound care dressing, those are all would require standard a, um, aseptic non-touch technique. And the other part to this is um, clearly identifying key parts and key sites. So key part is the um, tip of the catheter. So the catheter is a key part. Your key site would be where you're starting your IV. Um, the um, tip of the, of the syringe would be a key part. Your needle, uh, your needleless connector, the hub of that connector would be a key part. So making sure that those are not contaminated. Um, so these are aspects that we are, have been incorporated into the INS standards of practice, as well as pretty well all best practice guidelines and clinical practice guidelines for vascular access. For practical asepsis, how would we, how do we put this into practice? It's important to remember that all those products that we use, so the dressing, the catheter itself, um, these are all sterile products. We want to make sure that whatever we use um, for the catheter itself and under the dressing should be sterile. Aseptic non-touch technique recommends, um, the framework recommends using clean gloves. The part of your risk assessment is asking the question um, that are you able to perform the procedure without touching a key part or a key site? And depending upon your environment, there may be, or the patient, based on your risk assessment, you're concerned that you may contaminate. So then that's when you would use sterile gloves. The important concept here is making sure that we focus on the no-touch technique, protecting key parts and key sites. The sterile gloves help to support that as opposed to relying on the sterile gloves to, to, um, for your practice. I hope that makes sense. Dressing characteristics are, dressings are a critical component for securing the catheter. Not only do they protect the exit site from contamination, but they do provide stability and securement so that catheter doesn't move. And you notice I'm saying this a lot, it's a really important concept for us to con continually keep in the, in the forefront of our minds that these catheters are, I like to equate it to like wet spaghetti floating in the vein. So they um, are not secure um, past the exit site. They're at risk for micro movements and we want to reduce those. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. But when we look at our dressings, transparent dressings are the best because then we have regular site visibility. Um, most of your transparent films are breathable. They're also bacteria proof, um, virus proof. So again, protecting the exit site. We want them to be flexible enough or formed in such a way that they actually help to support the catheter um, design so that, again, the catheter doesn't move, as well as, of course, our skin friendly, but still secure. So a lot of things that we're asking the dressings to do. Most of the dressings that are now on the market have been an answer to prayer because they are not only now have borders as you can see here they are all in one package so they have sterile uh, tape strips um, these borders help to provide stability to the dressing itself um, the way that they are manufactured makes it easy to be able to apply it um, a lot of times with one hand as opposed to two we want to be using these kinds of dressings. These are adhere adhesive securement dressings as um, versus a flat film. Flat films are basically just sticky clear wrap. They have absolutely no, except for protecting the exit site, they cannot stabilize or, or hold that dressing, um, the catheter itself in place. So flat films are good for a one-time use, less than a six hour, six hour infusion, and then, um, and then you're done but to leave that in for any length of time increases your risk of catheter failure. Make sure that if you're using any um, non-sterile tape that it is outside the dressing, please do not tape over this transparent window. This is your visibility factor. We wanna make sure that we see the pathway or um, where the catheter is inserted as well as the pathway of the uh, catheter itself. So as you can see here, put your tape under um, outside the dressing and outside the transparent window. Make sure that when you're applying your dressings that you do not, or the tape, that you do not stretch because stretching 
will end up with a medical adhesive related skin injury because again, we're gonna have a tension between the tape and the skin. This is another example, as I mentioned about using the one hand application because again, we don't have to touch, we don't wanna to touch the adhesive under the dressing, especially because if you're using clean gloves and you touch the underside of the dressing, you've contaminated it. So doing a one-handed technique, these are designed to be that way, um, so that helps. You can always use a sterile gauze to help um, stabilize your catheter hub while you're putting the dressing on. Um, so there's some options there, but again, making sure that you do not touch the underside or the adhesive part of the dressing because then you've contaminated it. Mentioned earlier about dressing management, just a couple of things that are important to remember that when there's a need for non-transparent dressing, remember that gauze dressings must be completely sealed. There was a study done in 2014 by Saad and all that demonstrated that bacteria can pass through 64 layers of gauze. So we don't wanna just window that gauze, we may need to make sure that that gauze is completely covered. Ideally using a different dressing that would of course be non-transparent, but that would again protect the exit site, hopefully help to protect and secure the catheter itself. These are options. When you're using non-transparent dressings, you wanna make sure that you can palpate the exit site even though you're changing it every 48 hours, there's still that observation, ask, look and feel to make sure that um, that exit site is not compromised, um, as well as of course, checking and assessing for the need daily. Uh, chlorhexidine gel dressings, um, if you have blood in there and it starts to leak out, those definitely need to be changed. And anytime your dressing is um, soiled, loose or wet, it must be changed. Please do not reinforce a dressing. Um, a loose dressing increases your contamination and risk of infection. I've mentioned securement and site protection. So we've covered the site protection part. With the securement, there are um, a number of different securement devices that are available. Choosing the right securement method includes assessing for suitability for the patient's functional abilities, thinking about whether, um, again, it's very different if you have a patient in a hospital, rehab center, in their home, or in long-term care, those needs are different. So we need to assess the functionality of that. The catheter design may narrow down the options for consideration with regards to securement. Skin integrity, is the skin dry and intact? Is it friable, is it compromised? This will also then impact the type of securement device that you're looking for. Um, the duration and type of therapy, and as well as the anatomical location. So those are all considerations. As you can see here, there are um, three, four different ones that we look at. I've mentioned adhesive securement devices and dressings. So these have been, um, there are some that are incorporated. These need to be changed, of course, based on the manufacturer's recommendations as well as standards of, of practice, which is, of course, for a transparent dressing, it's every seven days or less. Your integrated securement devices, so making sure that you have, as it says here, proper application is key. It's critical no matter what you're using that you know how to apply it and how to remove it. Your, um, your sales rep, the company, they're your best friend and making sure that you know how to uh, follow the manufacturer's instructions for use on application and removal. It's very critical. I've seen um, a number of patients coming from different emergency rooms. I worked in an area that was quite large, Greater Toronto area, and we would have patients coming with um, interesting variations on how to apply dressings. So it's important that we know how to use it properly. Subcutaneous anchor devices systems are one. You don't have to be changed with the dressing, but you do need to have a dressing as well. And tissue adhesive. So all of these re still require a dressing that covers the exit site. Okay. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of considerations before deciding which one is going to be best for your patient. And sometimes you might actually have to change it depending upon the patient situation. So this is an example of these um, adhesive securement dressings. Um, this is uh, again, securement adhesive securement devices that lock the peripheral catheter in place. This is a um, catheter design, these wings 
catheter has wings, um, actually helps to stabilize the catheter so stops that rotating, uh, twisting motion that occurs. And so um, this is an example of a tissue adhesive. So all of these are examples of these engineered securement devices that can be used to secure and stabilize the, um, the, the catheter. You notice I'm using stabilize and secure. There are two different concepts. Generally, they can, I've heard them used uh, interchangeably. Stabilizing is keeping that catheter in place. And then securement is making sure that it doesn't move. So those two things work together. Um, one could debate those, those definitions, but nonetheless, they work in tandem to ensure that we reduce those micro movements that can occur um, with the catheter in place. And so why is this whole concept of catheter movement important? Micro and macro movements initiate the inflammatory response. The body does not know any different. If we are, if that catheter is constantly kind of twisting or slowly, like our micro movements in and out, that irritate, causes irritation. That irritation stimulates the inflammatory response. At the exit site, what happens is that you get an, uh, you start to get an erosion of the insertion size. You get leaking capillaries because of the inflammatory response. So you start to get um, drainage at the insertion site. Your, um, the, um, the cells, the stratum cells actually get macerated. They increase in size, allow bacteria to enter in. The um, drainage can actually cause irritation at the exit site. So that's really messy. The other piece is that catheter is moving and eroding at the actual vessel wall. Just a reminder um, that the endothelium is one cell thick, very vulnerable to injury. And as you can see by this schematic here, um, this happens whenever there is any kind of inflammation. And so the inflammation and the irritation is occurring at the end of, on the endothelium, the tunica intima itself. You will start to get, of course, platelet aggregation, and then we get the formation of a clot because of what the body wants to repair. They want to stop this damage from occurring. They want to stop the leakage. So you can develop it. So we develop a clot. We can develop phobitis, thrombophobitis that can occur. The other piece that can happen, of course, is that this damage can continue, and it can actually erode the vessel. And so we've got a lot of things that can happen when that catheter is not stable and secure. So that's why it's so important that we make sure that we do that. Now, when we think about erosion of the vessel, that can then lead to infiltration or um, if we're, depending upon what we're infusing through this peripheral IV, it could also cause extravasation. We've all, hopefully, I'm hoping that many of you have never seen extravasation, but if you haven't, this, these are some of the results of what happens um, when the vessel erodes and an irritant or vesicant is um, infused into the tissue. As you can see here, um, we want definitely want to avoid this. You can see that this went all the way along the vessel here. You can see all this blistering on this foot. Choosing the right location, the right device for the required treatment. So do we give a vesicant in a midline? It is not recommended at all because you can't see it's up here in the, um, near the axilla. It is hidden by the time any kind of um, erythemia, heat or whatever reaches um, the um, an area where we can see in the upper arm, it's way too late. So we don't recommend that at all for any vascular irritant for midlines. We wanna make sure that we choose the right location, um, the right device for the required treatment. We need to stabilize and secure that catheter well. Regular site checks. So whatever we are using, we wanna make sure that we not, if we can't see it, we wanna be able to palpate it. We're gonna be asking the patient on a regular basis. All of these work together to reduce extravasation, as well as of course, contamination and infection, which is why we're here today to talk about this more. But this is one sequela we hope never to see. Okay, we mentioned protection of the intraluminal space by flushing um, and also securement. And the re reason we do this is to ensure patency, as we can see here. Anytime we insert anything into the body, the body sees it as foreign, and so fibrin will start to build up protective measure that the body has. 
the problem is, is that it builds up, as you can see in this cartoon to my left, that it builds up on the outside of the catheter as well as can be inside the catheter, the reason why we flush. Um, as shown here, the study, the odds ratio for developing a bloodstream infection when you've had a clot or an occlusion is three times higher. And as you can see out of this, this was a pretty robust study with over 3000 uh, patients in it and 12% required alteplase. And they found that again, the average time for alteplase prior to diagnosis of catheter related bloodstream infection was less than three days. So there is a direct correlation. There was another study done in Spain that showed that uh, similar results to this. Fibrin is high in protein. The other thing that we try, we're trying to prevent by all, by reducing the risk of contamination and infection is the buildup of bacteria or biofilm inside or outside the catheter. Fibrin is, I don't know if you guys have Mandarin, but there's a Chinese restaurant here that is called the Mandarin and they have like one of the largest buffets I've ever seen in my life. Well, fibrin is that for bacteria. It is like a tremendous buffet of like, like, and, and it's an oxygen rich environment because it's in the bloodstream. So like they can have a heyday. We wanna try and prevent that. So preventing that buildup, reducing the contamination risk helps to reduce the buildup or development of biofilm. Um, and so some of the things we wanna try to do, these are all things that we've talked about that help to reduce risk such as phlebitis, thrombophlebitis, bloodstream infection for peripheral IV catheters. So standardization is really a critical piece. And in my experience, I found that clinicians generally get, um, in the past, it's been, oh my gosh, like our patients are individual. How do we provide patient-centered care when you want to standardize things? Um, you know, that makes sense because we know that patients are unique. At the same time, standardization based on evidence um, reduces inconsistencies that can lead that can lead to um, patient um, complications, and we don't want that. Having the right equipment, having the right supplies, um, knowing the right procedures, having everything available so that um, not that it's a checklist, but that you have the consistency of a bundle that ensures that we're providing a consistency of care or practice is absolutely critical to improved outcomes and reduced um, infection. It also saves money, patients feel more comfortable, and it saves, it saves clinicians time. So this is an example of kits. And kits are, um, they're determined by the elements of the bundle that's being implemented. And I cannot stress enough having worked in the community and long-term care um, there were times where we, um, it was not, especially in COVID, it was very difficult to get supplies. Having kits helped to reduce that variation, which of course helped us to provide better patient care. There is an efficiency, it saves money, and it also um, takes the guesswork out of what is, what is it that I need for these patients. So um, kits that are all put together, I know that in the United States, you have a lot of those, um, which are fantastic. This is an example of one where, which would I would see in a community where it's in um, either, uh, usually in a Ziploc bag with individual components, but all the components that are needed are in that bag so that I grab that kit and off I go to do my PIVC insertion or my CVAD dressing change. And that really helps to reduce that variation. It improves, as I mentioned, consistency, helps nurses to, um, to truly provide patient-centered care because it's based on what they need within that bundle. This is an example of a standardized central vascular access kit. Um, one element of a bundle that ties the changes together into a package of interventions that people know and must follow for every patient every day. Having these kits and the bundle really helps to improve patient outcomes and patient safety. My colleague, Kathy, will discuss further how the bundle approach reduces infection and helps to standardize and improve practice. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for all that great information. 
Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be talking to you again. And now we're really going to take those concepts of bundles and checklists that I talked about at the very beginning and apply them to peripheral IV bloodstream infection risk. So first, I'm going to give you a few more definitions. We're going to start with implementation science. So implementation is really about taking all of those great details that uh, Karen just gave us about what uh, the science says we should be doing and ideas for improvement and making sure that it's happening, uh, making sure that it's uh, easily easy done, easily done by our coworkers and healthcare providers, well done, efficiently done, and done every single time. And that's the, the key to implementing these things. So implementation versus an intervention. Essentially, they're large I words, of course, right? But you implement an intervention. So the intervention you can see in this slide is one piece of the entire implementation strategy. So for example, say your intervention is deciding to use a cap, an alcohol impregnated cap over your needleless adapters. So that is the thing that you are going to change. That's the clinician behavior that you are going to change. They're going to start putting caps on every one of their hubs you want to implement that, you are going to need to identify your outcomes, any analysis and randomization, as well as next steps. And that's going to be your full implementation strategy. So for example, with the implementation or the intervention of a needleless uh, connector covers or caps, you would want to talk about uh, with the team that you choose to implement this with, be it a unit, be it a hospital, be it an entire healthcare system, you would want to look at outcomes such as acceptability. Do the healthcare workers like it? Uh, adoption, do they use it? Um, feasibility, is it possible for them to use the cap that you've chosen or do they fall off? Um, you want to track information about costs as well as sustainability. And um, that implementation plus sustainability is going to really lead us into uh, a lot of the rest of our work today. So we implement interventions, but we really want to sustain progress. A lot of these interventions that we're implementing aren't necessarily new. And a lot of times they're places where we need to revisit or make just a tweak. And we want to continue to sustain progress. So there are a couple of key things that are very important for that. The first is local ownership, as well as peer ownership and peer, peer support. Uh, we're going to touch on leadership and the importance of that with implementing any sort of strategy, but it's definitely key that leaders, both formal and informal, are involved in supporting your initiative to sustain it. Making sure that uh, everyone is clear on the common goals. So that's definitely the way to get to your frontline caregivers um, to make sure they understand this isn't just something new you're trying. It is aimed for this particular goal generally preventing bloodstream infections with our example of needless adapter caps and make sure everyone's clear that that's, that's why we need them to do it. Any of our measures, some of those outcomes or that we're gonna be tracking need to be valid and scalable. So bacteremia is a great outcome that we track, but you also would wanna track, for example, maybe usage of the needleless cap and make sure that you have really good data behind that before you're using that to um, track your uh, progress. And then creating a culture where standard work is the norm. So this one's pretty key, and we're gonna delve into standard work a little bit more. So standard work pretty much has uh, two to three components. Um, it is supported by the literature and by standards um, that have been set out guidelines by uh, evidence-based organizations, but it has to be defined by the people doing the work. So I'll say this a couple of times today, probably. Standard work, um, we can share, and I'm gonna give you guys some great examples, but it needs to have foundation in the people who are doing the work. So we wanna take information we see in standards, guidelines, and education. We wanna work with our frontline caregivers on how they can make those things happen. And then we develop the standard work, which is the best way we know from our frontline caregivers on how we can make these things happen. So let's go a little bit more into that. Um, one of the best pieces of standard work is a visual aid. And this is a step-by-step -step, step instruction, typically just for one exact procedure or one exact task. So a lot of times we'll have several of them uh, for the overall care of the patient, for example, with a peripheral line. 
So we've got some examples here of things that you might want to make standard work visual aids for. So this one's a little small. I have another one later that's a little bit bigger, but I wanted you to be sure to have these keys of what you should have in your standard work visual aids. So we've got two screenshots here. This is essentially a, a single piece of paper, double-sided, typically laminated um, with this organization. The front of it includes really the meat and the front's on the, on the right side <laughs> is really the meat. So it has um, the content, what you're going to do, including your purpose of, um, so this is an example about actually changing those needleless connectors. So what the purpose is of that, it has the timing and the location. So um, yes, this is your work for changing needleless connectors, but it starts off with the reminder that you should do this every 96 hours when you change primary tubing. And it clarifies that the location is within the patient care area. That's where you do the needleless connector changes. The expected time, it takes about five minutes and a nice QR code there. If you have um, access to a video, that's even better than our visual aids here with the pictures and the words. So you can include a visual a video link that people could just grab out their smartphone and watch it all happen live. That's even better. Um, when you get to the meat of this visual aid example of standard work, you can see that uh, Britt's team has lined out the exact detailed steps of this needleless connector change. And so they're um, in order, in sequence. So the first thing you do is gather supplies, then you don your mask, then you perform hand hygiene and clean gloves. Then we start to get to the sections with the pictures. You're going to flush the needleless connector with this saline, and this is exactly what it looks like while you're doing that. You're going to cleanse the junction of the needleless neutral connector for 15 seconds. So they've got some blue highlighting of the really key points, the 15 seconds, and do not use excessive force to remove them. And again, more pictures of exactly what it will look like when you're using the products that are used in your individual institution and using them correctly. The screenshot on the left, I would consider the back of the page is the rationale to exactly why you're doing all those steps. So it's not just here's what we need you to do, it's here's why we need you to do it. Why do you gather your supplies first? So that you make sure you have everything available, you won't need to stop and search and you won't potentially contaminate what you have there if you have to leave the setup to go get more supplies. Why do you keep the saline syringe attached to the connector? Well, there's no reason to detach it. Um, why do you clean the junction of the needleless connector and the extension set for 15 seconds? Well, because we don't want to, uh, we need to decontaminate it. And uh, the reminder not to touch the um, open lumen when you're cleaning it prior to removing the connector. So the standard work is really important in reducing variation. Again, it, it provides that clear and concise direction on exactly how to perform these individual tasks. And it outlines everything that you need as well as um, explaining again that why. These are very, uh, very helpful for training new staff and uh, very helpful for retraining with experienced staff that may have developed shortcuts or changed the process as they have um, completed it hundreds of times. Um, I, I often see these types of standard works laminated and maybe even posted right next to where the supplies are for the needleless connector change, for example. So it's easy to grab it. You can take it to the room and use it while you're doing the procedure. If you're lucky enough, you might have someone else with you who can look through the standard of work while you do the procedure in more of a checklist fashion. And it's really nice also to facilitate improvement discussions. So your standard work will have who made it or what department was involved in making the standard of work usually on the, on the footer. And so if you have frontline staff who would like to see a change in it or who have a, um, a question that's not explained by the rationale, it really helps get conversations started very quickly about making sure everybody's on the same page. So as I said, I think it's really key that um, you as in your organization take examples of standard work, but it will need to be vetted and um, potentially changed and personalized to your organization. So. I hopefully I've convinced you that you need some of the standard work and specifically visual aids as that example. So how do you go about implementing this, taking it from your current state up to our ideal state? 
So the first thing that's very key is identifying your champions. Champions both to help uh, imp- uh, help make the standard work and make sure it's exactly what you guys need for your organization, as well as champions to help implement that standard work. Um, once you're done with that process of making the standard work, um, having it available in an accessible place, an example was uh, located by where the supplies are stocked or maybe in a nurse's station in a specific folder. Um, laminated copies are, are really important to have, but in, if push comes to shove and the laminated copy didn't get put back where it belonged, an electronic, uh, easily printable version uh, could be helpful too. And then you really have to get into that sustainment work or the keys to, now that you have this really great process set out very nicely, how do you make sure it's really used every time? So you start by setting the expectations that it is used every time. And how do you know that people are meeting your expectations? Well, audits. We're going to talk a little bit about audits, but um, watching a lot in the beginning of standard work implementation and then tapering off once it has become more hardwired um, is typically the best way to do it. And then while you are doing a lot of that watching at the beginning of implementation of your standard work, that's the best time to identify barriers. Maybe you will still need to treat your standard work a little bit. Maybe the standard work is well-written, but we need to change the way things are organized or change, um, make hand hy- alcohol foam more easily accessible for hand hygiene, for example. And working with those people in real time through that auditing will be helpful to identify any adjustments. So I mentioned I'd have a larger example. Uh, so hopefully you guys can see this one a little bit better. This one's not changing needles connectors. This one's actually changing the dressing. But the, you can see the nice way this organization has set them out very similarly. You still have your purpose and who is doing it and when it should be done and the locations and that QR code at the very top. You still got the important steps highlighted in blue. So I really like on this one, which is about addressing change, is very clear in blue Uh, They're in steps five and six. Who is supposed to don the mask and who is supposed to don head covering, for example. Uh, Then it goes through, again, all of those details, including hand hygiene and glove changes when necessary, including details about, so step 11, for example, is scrubbing the site after the old dressing is removed. So important information, 30 seconds, using that CHG swab switch. Stick. It does add a few words to clarify those important pieces, but they're very key to have there rather than just clean the site, for example. Uh, then uh, the other information about how you finish up the process, uh, again, a nice final hand hygiene step and a reminder to document. And again, with this example, there's more of them. There were more steps. There are more to the rationale. But again, that rationale of why everyone within three feet of the sterile field is donning the head covering and why sterile gloves are needed and um, why hand hygiene is needed at the end of the procedure, for example. So as you go through this process, it will happen. We will have some barriers. So just so you're aware and and have an idea of what you're watching out for, even though hopefully you've worked with a lot of your frontline staff, or at least some of your very engaged frontline staff to identify um, any concerns about this process and the best way to do it. As you roll this out to all of your other staff, uh, one of the biggest barriers you'll see is really people who are already comfortable with this skill. They, They think they have the knowledge and um, they don't want to take the time to read the standard work each time, and they aren't clear that reading the standard work each time is really going to be useful for them in their practice. And so getting in with those level of practitioners and getting their buy-in early is always helpful, but just know that that may come up and have your talking points ready about why standard work is important for all of us, maybe not just those who are new or newly learning these skills. Uh, in addition, while you're implementing this work, we, as we talked about support after training, we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a couple of slides, specifically about leadership. Um, funding will also come up, especially if your standard of work includes any new technologies or new products. Um, so always have in your back pocket the cost of a bacteremia. They're pretty easily to, easy to find at the, on the guidelines that have been published so that you can talk um, eloquently about spending a little bit of money to save a bacteremia and save a life. And what can facilitate, what can help you with implementing this standard work? 
some of these are just keys of your really engaged staff or those staff that are going to really take to this idea of standard work and visual aids, those that are receptive to learning, those um, that have sort of the, uh, the, a great attitude toward change and toward trying something new and toward making sure that their, their, um, their processes are done correctly. Uh, also, what's going to help implement your standard of work is really that intervention training. So the amount of time and support that you spend implementing this and talking about this. And then the other big key is your rapport. So if you are one of our vascular access colleagues, you spend a lot of time with frontline staff, you probably have a good rapport with staff. If you're an infection preventionist like myself, uh, you need to spend some time getting out and knowing staff. And um, talking with them about the reasons and about the work and about the process to develop the work and really um, and explaining to them why you're interested and helping them understand why you're, why you're there talking about these things. So then uh, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about a few other things that really help that clinical decision support or help making sure that that standard work is, is hardwired and we have everything else in place to support that standard work. So I'm going to talk uh, first a little bit about auditing and then um, some about algorithms for which devices to place for bacteremia prevention. So auditing, we have some examples in this slide and the next that you can take off um, the slide deck when you have it. Um, but I want to just give you a, a couple of keys about auditing. So the auditing is part of our daily practice. It's not the favorite thing of a lot of our frontline caregivers. I mean, most of us don't like to be watched in our daily work every day and, you know, kind of have somebody looking over your shoulder, making sure you're doing things right. But it is just so key. We can't tell from documentation. We can't tell if we're not in the room, if people are, are doing the things we want them to do. So a couple of really key tips about auditing. Number one is be really clear to the staff that you're auditing about what you're auditing them on. If you have developed those standard work and visual aids and they are able to hold that in their hand and review it at the time that they're doing the process or, or before, you should also be auditing basically off of that exact same standard work. If we audit off something we haven't educated them to, it's going to be difficult for them to uh, meet our audit expectations and it's gonna be frustrating for them. If you're auditing something that doesn't have exact standard work um, developed yet, then share that audit tool ahead of time. So this talks, uh, one of, some of these examples talk about um, the maintenance. So what the dressing site should look like uh, at all times. And if it doesn't look like this, that's the indication for a dressing change, for example. So make sure that staff are clear. It needs to be clean. It needs to be dry. It needs to be completely intact. And what intact means in your definition, there needs to be no blood there. Uh, for example, unless the product you use allows a little bit of blood. Be sure that whatever you're using, it's really clear to those frontline staff. Otherwise, they're going to get very frustrated um, with not being able to meet your expectations because they don't exactly understand them. The other essential element for auditing, as I switch to some more examples of things and places you could audit, is about getting feedback. So it is important for you to audit so that you know if something is or isn't happening. But the best way for our healthcare providers to learn from auditing is to get feedback. And it's really to get feedback as close to the time of the audit as possible. A few key tips that I always use for auditing. Number one, if I'm going for feedback from auditing, I would, um, and if at all possible, give that feedback away from the patient. If you obviously have a, a patient who is not um, fully aware of what's happening, it's okay to give feedback in front of them. But in general, uh, after the nurse or whatever healthcare provider you're auditing leaves the room, leaving the room with them and trying to get them just alone quickly in the hall for a quick feedback session away from the patient and if possible away from their other coworkers. It is difficult to get negative feedback for all of us. And um, the, everything you can do to make this a constructive learning time will both benefit uh, the colleague and the, the healthcare provider as far as learning. It will also benefit you from that rapport because if you do end up in a situation where your, your audit feedback doesn't go well, it's not going to help that provider learn and they will probably tell their friends, which may end up kind of hurting your credibility overall. 
Oh, I did want to say one other thing about auditing, about audit feedback. If you are in a, in a situation where the feedback isn't um, going well and isn't being accepted well, keep it short, keep it simple, keep it as positive as you can, and be sure you just thank them for all the care they've given. You definitely don't want to turn to start an argument or anything like that with the coworker who's receiving the feedback. Just keep it as positive as possible and thank them because their their job, of course, is, is quite hard, as are all of ours. And then I wanted to also share this as another example of a great tool for clinical decision-making and really helping enforce these standardization documents. So this, while our talk is mostly about peripheral blood, uh, bloodstream infections today, this is a great um, tool for deciding specifically if you can't get that peripheral IV in, do you want to go to a midline or do you want to go to a central venous access device? So this tool is nice in that it gives both the description of all three of the devices here in the top three boxes, as well as indications for each individual one and contraindications. This is another example of something that you would want to develop and get buy-in for uh, with all of your frontline staff. And pharmacy is another great uh, partner to include in these decisions, specifically about the Vesicance and midline catheters. And then what's really also nice about this, while the top three boxes show you the differences between these uh, different types of vascular access, they're all vascular access, right? So that bottom orange box reinforces the things that are the same, no matter which one you choose. Scrubbing the hub before accessing, performing hand hygiene. Um, if you ever to change the line, you need to get new tubing as well. Changing the dressing every seven days and flushing every eight hours, regardless of which type of line you choose, those are all things that are important in preserving that line. All right, so we're getting here toward the end. We just have a couple more things. So a couple deep breaths to get some extra oxygen to your brain uh, so we can finish strong. So first thing I mentioned that I was going to talk a little bit about management and leadership and how important that is in standard work and uh, successful implementation. So I wanted to highlight this great article about management practices, um, specifically toward infection prevention and HAI um, decreases by Anne McElerney and her colleagues. So this was published um, in 2021 in the American Journal of Infection Control, which is the journal of APIC. And it is uh, really, it was an interview survey that was done in 18 different hospitals, included both leaders and frontline staff, included 420 total people. And they were asked specifically, what is it about leadership that is key to making interventions and bundles and implementation go well? You're probably not going to be surprised, but this, um, I'm going to highlight the three findings they have. And that this is a great paper to take to your leaders when you're talking to them about what you want to implement and how they can help. So of the three things that this study found were most important, number one was the engagement of executive leadership. So executive leader rounds are pretty prominent in most organizations. So if you have a chief nurse or even your chief medical officer or your president rounds every once in a while, um, if you start to implement a new process, making sure that they know this is something new or something updated we're doing with our staff and it's something they can ask the staff about when they're doing their rounding, it'll really show their engagement into your processes. The second is information sharing. And I think we really covered information sharing. I think the, the best ways for information sharing really are those um, visual aids, standard work, uh, bundle formats. And then the third one is manager coaching. So can't uh, say enough how important it is that uh, the frontline lead, the leader of the frontline staff, the leader who is there most um, prominently is engaged in the work, is aware of the work, and is frequently talking about the work. They're the person who's there day in and day out, and continuing to focus on that day in and day out will reinforce that work with your staff. All right, and then we have just a fun, quick case study for you. So the case study is on the left. I'm going to read it to you. So we have a 65-year-old patient with a peripheral IV that is in their right forearm and it was placed seven days ago. They do still need at least four days of therapy and there are no symptoms of any complications with that site. So the options you have are, uh, what, what should you do with, with that site? Should you remove that profile IV and replace it? 
Should you perform a dressing change and connector change and monitor for complications? Or should you request a midline catheter? I'm going to give you guys just a couple of seconds to think about that. So I hope most of you have chosen option number two. This is based on most of the information out of Karen's um, presentation, but current INS guidelines do not require routine replacement of the peripheral IV that they can. Um, you will need to change the dressing since it's been seven days, as well as the connectors and tubing. Then you can leave it in place and continue to monitor for complications, assuming that your facility policy also supports that. So we do have a couple of slides here of references for you to um, use, and most of those are noted on the slides. And that is our content for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope this has been incredibly helpful, and I wish you luck in developing your standard work and implementing your bundles. Thank you.